I can't do flexible dieting because I have so many trigger foods. Um, the years that I was trying to gain weight, that I was trying to grow, I ate everything under the sun. So I, I taught myself how to eat a tremendous amount of food. And the thing is, is like there's certain foods that are trigger foods for me. And so it's, it's the, for those particular foods, you create the understanding that it's not that this food quote, is quote unquote bad. It's just that if I start eating it, I'm going to eat a lot of it. So that would be phase two. Number one, the number one phase is trying to dis- disassociate. And that may sound like it's, um, it's hypocritical that, you know, well, you're saying that there's no good foods, no bad foods. And you say, well, the trigger foods are bad. Trigger foods, it's not that the food itself is bad. It's just that your response to it tends to be a roadblock in terms of your goal setting, right? Your goal achievement. The Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. Hey, thank you for checking into this edition of the CEP. Just a couple of reminders before we get started. Be sure to subscribe to the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you crazy kids consume your podcast. Be sure to visit the launching pad for all things Cerebral at thecepodcast.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that at Cerebral at thecepodcast.com. And remember that we now have some sweet merch, including t-shirts and koozies at byjack.com slash CEP. That's B-Y-J-A-C-K dot com slash C-E-P. Now for this episode, we bring you the extremely knowledgeable Paul Carter. Paul is an author, a coach, an entrepreneur, a philosopher, and he was a whole lot of fun to talk to. So we highly recommend you follow Paul Carter on the socials. And so without further introduction, here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to yet another edition of the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. I am James, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Colt. You know it. And with us on the line today... Mr. Paul Carter, how you doing today, Paul? Hey, dude, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time out to wax all things fitness, nutrition, bodybuilding, and beyond. It's going to be a great conversation, I know. And uh, yeah, just glad to have you on with your super huge coffee mug that you're sporting, man. You were talking about, <laughs> about coffee in the Dominican. What's so special about co- I'm a coffee connoisseur myself. I love coffee. And I leave it the way that God intended it, black as the night itself, okay? Right. And I just, I love different kinds. The darker, the better. And so you were talking about Dominican coffee being so good. What makes it so good? You know, it, it's just got to be because the bean, I think the beans are grown there locally. So it's, you know, it's like you're getting beans, like, I guess they're like fresh and then they grind it up and they bring it out to you, but then they hoard the shit out of it and give it to you in this like tiny coffee mug. So it's the most, it's, it's uh, the most pleasuring and frustrating thing uh, ever. So it's like they, they bring you the coffee. It's like the best coffee ever. And then you're only getting like four ounces of it. So you have to keep asking for it over and over. And it takes them a while to bring it back out for you. So, so but when I'm home, I, yeah, I drink like a pot in the morning. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed the size of your cup. I have a big mug too. Probably not quite as big as yours. But when I'm carrying it around at, at work and whatnot, people notice. They notice, <laughs> hey, that, that's a big mug. You know? And, and right. I, I take my coffee seriously, just like what you mentioned. I think coffee's yeah, a, it, have, it's a big yeah, deal. If you're going to be a coffee drinker, have a man-sized mug. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Otherwise, don't don't waste time. So, so do, do you drink coffee for health reasons at all or just um, just for the caffeine itself or just the taste or what's the what's the reason? No, just because I like it. I, okay. I, I don't think that's the way God intended it was to be drinking black. I think if God intended it to be black, he wouldn't have made cows to make milk to make cream. And, and <laughs> yeah. I, put, I put nature in my back of my coffee, extra nature in it. Uh, then I came that out by adding artificial sweetener, which I posted about the other day, which always riles people up, which I think is one of the funniest things ever about the net is the shit people get so emotionally attached to as far as topically. But yeah, 
Um, no, I don't like everything that I do like that. I know we're going to talk about nutrition. Like I, there's a, a massive, there's a, a, a myriad of benefits, health benefits to coffee from the antioxidants to, um, reducing oxidative stress. I believe even, um, that coffee can do despite the fact that it has caffeine, but, uh, uh, no, I don't drink it and like, Oh, I'm getting, I'm getting my big health in a cup. Um, so I just like, I like the taste of coffee. And yeah, I'm kind of like you. I've turned in a little bit of a, a a little bit of a coffee connoisseur over the last few years, which is funny because uh, most of the early years of my life, I I hated coffee. Mm-hmm. I didn't drink coffee at all. Uh, so yeah, but now I go through about a pot in the morning. Yeah, wow, that's how I started too. I started out dumping just everything, a lot of cream, a lot of sugar. You know, I had a little bit of coffee in there. Um, something had happened. I was on antibiotics one time, and it said I, that I couldn't use any dairy products, so I took it seriously and I stopped using the creamer. And then for some reason, I stopped using the sugar, too. And now I can't go back. It's like I love my coffee just as, as black as it can be. Yeah. And you know what's weird? A couple of years ago when I was doing a lot of traveling, uh, doing a lot of seminars, there's always a Starbucks in airports, right? And I would just get Starbucks, and I hated it. And after a while, because it, to me it's such a bitter coffee. Starbucks has a very bitter – they use a very bitter coffee, right? The, the beans are more bitter. So – I um I got used to it though, and then I got to where I actually liked that taste. So I ended up with an acquired taste of that bitter coffee, and then that left me probably about a year or so ago. And then I was just like, I was drinking dark roast, and now I can't drink dark roast, and I can't drink bitter. So it's like I've gone back to it's a light roast, which I did not even know that light roast coffee have, has more caffeine in it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, dark roast starts. Blacker, it's got to have more caffeine, it's got to be stronger. It's the opposite, actually. It's the light roast coffee that's actually stronger. Yeah. Like, is it le- like a legitimate amount, different uh, caffeine-wise? I don't I've never looked – I've only looked up the information to verify that it was true. But the okay. light roast has more caffeine in it. And I do. I did notice when I switched over that there was a little bit more of a kick in the morning uh, from switching back to a light roast where I'd been using a dark roast before that. So, yeah. Gotcha. If you go to a breakfast blend, which is typically a lighter roast, you're going to get yeah. a little bit more of a caffeine boost from that. And I forget exactly the specifics, but it has something to do with the actual process. Uh, and uh, and they, for some reason, the dark stuff has less caffeine. And that surprised me as well. I would have thought it was the opposite. But I also, Paul, went to uh, grinding my own beans at the house, uh, using a whole bean grinder. It's, it's the freshest way to approach your coffee. And I did that for a while too, except that um, I went through like three grinders and they all kept breaking on me. Hmm. And I was like, that's it. I was like, I'm just going back to the I was like, I'm not going to keep buying machines. Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you there. So, yeah. But I mean, you're totally right. Like, if you wake up in the morning, grind your beans, like, it, that's the best way to have your coffee. It does, it does make a, a difference as far as taste goes, 100%. For sure. Right. Well, Paul, we've, we've gotten into the coffee. You know, your interest in that. Let's talk about you for a little bit, what you do, how you got to where you are. Give us a little bio history of Paul Carter and, and what you do nowadays. Oh, gosh, I always hate this part because anytime you talk about yourself, I, it's it's difficult for me to, to talk about me and not feel like that I'm being arrogant or just even talking about my background. So maybe that's something I need to work on personally. If it's like how I got here to this position is kind of a weird road. I started lifting weights when I was 14. I realized I was, I was like 14. I was like 98 pounds. Uh, I was uh, I was coming out. I was in a really hard time in my life. My, my teenage years were, were, uh, were pretty bad. And uh, I found... I got into lifting from my martial arts instructor out in Oregon. I was spending the summer out there, and after about three weeks, 
I saw what what it was. I was having my new gains. I saw what it was doing with my body, and I realized, man, I, I want to do this forever because I really like what's going on here. So I I realized that um, that lifting was probably going to be something I'd do uh, for the rest of my life. And um, I went into the military when I was 22 and became a computer engineer, did that for 15 years. And so I was actually a total nerd. I was a Unix engineer for like 15 years and got out of the military or when I got out of the military, I did that. That was my like my full time job. And I got into writing about a decade ago. And I realized I really love writing. So uh, I wrote a novel and uh, started my own blog. And at the time, I was talking to Jim Wendler a lot. I don't know if you guys know who Jim Wendler is. I don't. But. Okay, well, Jim, do you guys have you guys ever heard of five three one, the training system five three one or whatever? I don't believe so. Okay, that's pretty cool because Jim's a is a pretty big name. You guys have heard of Elite FTS? Yes, right? correct. Yeah. Well, Jim was the senior editor at Elite FTS for okay. years and years and years. And um, Jim was like, "Well, what are you writing on your blog?" My blog wasn't even open for anybody to read, so I would I send in my articles that I was writing over on the blog and. Um, so he's like, dude, this is awesome. He's like, would you, would you like, because we'd like to publish your stuff. And I was like, hell no. And it's crazy because there's people out there that are like begging sites to publish their shit. And I was like, no, I don't want anybody to publish my stuff. I just like writing. So they yeah, eventually talked me into it. Uh, they published my stuff. The blog blew up like overnight. And then long story short, I ended up writing for pretty much every, every major publication that there is out there from, you started with Elite FTS, T Nation, Bodybuild.com. I've written for Flex. Magazine, Muscle and Fitness, uh, Muscle and Strength. I mean, if you just about name it, I've written for them. And then, so then I started doing seminars. I was competing in powerlifting. I competed in powerlifting for ten years. Uh, retired from powerlifting and then bought, did bodybuilding. Over the last few years, I've really focused on specializing in teaching biomechanics. And so, to this day, like kind of more or less, what I do is I help average anywhere from average people to IPB pros get better. Uh, with better movement execution, um, nutrition, and stuff like that. So, mm. just kind of a a little bit of everything. Yeah. What kind of a name? What kind of name drops can you make as far as bodybuilders that you've helped? Oh gosh, I've worked with as far as bodybuilders. I've worked with, um, done stuff with. I trained Freddie Smalls for I don't know the last four years. Worked with him. Um, I've worked with a number of other guys as far as like peak week stuff. Where they came in, they were having trouble. Um, Freddie helped connect me with a lot of guys. And some of them I don't like to mention because they would have full-time diet coaches. But then we would adjust things during the week against their diet coaches' recommendation. <laughs> uh, so it's like I can't say some of those. Right. But as far as guys that I've worked with, just like worked with and things like that, done things with, every like guys from John Meadows and I have done a, a, a lot of things together. Uh, I've worked with Ben Pakulski. Gosh, maybe I haven't had enough coffee this morning. I'd have to think of all the guys uh, outside of that that I've worked with. Like I said, just draw up a link this morning. Gosh, a lot of guys at the NPC level. So, yeah, I mean, and then elite level powerlifters. When I was still competing in powerlifting, I did a lot of coaching for those guys too. But I don't really work with powerlifters much anymore. Gotcha. Okay. You said you were working against the diet coaches' routine or recommendations. What can you tell me about that? Um, one of the things is I, I think peak week is sometimes, especially for bodybuilders, the thing about peak week is even if you do it like perfectly, um, it's not going to make a massive difference in how you look if you haven't gotten lean enough to start with. And that's right. kind of um, a lot of guys say, well, you know, I'll nail my peak week and whatever. Like if you didn't, the, the, the biggest part about going into definitely a show, a physique show or a bodybuilding show or whatever is just getting lean enough. Like that's got to be the number one thing. 
if you nail your peak week, it might add 2% to how you look. But if you screw it up, <clears throat> if you screw it up, it can detract maybe maybe 10%. Mm. So it's not as much uh, not as much about, say, that the peak week is so important that it's going to make the difference between you know you looking amazing and you looking not amazing even if you nail it but if you screw it up yeah you can you can look pretty horrible okay a lot of people remember i can't remember i i have trouble remembering the years the year ronnie coleman he still won but he looked pretty pretty uh pretty bloated and it was the year he woke up he was feeling he talked about that in his documentary he woke up and he just started drinking water like crazy right but he looked like shit for that show he still won it was a gift but i mean a lot of that was right he got up and drank a bunch of water so he's he spilled over so some of it comes back to it's like I said, it's really not for peak week. I don't think it's as complicated process, but I think a lot of coaches overcomplicate that shit. Uh, and I, the other thing I think is that the reliance on diuretics by a lot of coaches out there is a big hindrance. Um, and John Meadows have had that particular talk with, uh, with guys that we've worked with multiple times. And John had an epiphany about that. He's been pretty open about it and said that, um, it actually hit him when he couldn't. I can't remember the story behind it, but he couldn't take diuretics going into the show, and he ended up looking his best. And he's like, "Well, that tells me I don't need that shit." Right. And I had a particular IFBB pro uh, that I was working with that um, uh, that got sick. It was the night um, he was freaking out about not taking diuretics, and he got sick the night before the show and had diarrhea. And so we couldn't take, we were actually, we were actually having him drink a ton of Gatorade just to try to replenish the flutes that were going out. And he ended up winning the show the next day. Wow. So, and that hit him too. He's like, wow, I don't need the diuretics. So a lot of these guys have those moments, right, where it happens where they just can't take the diuretics and they, they look amazing. They're like, well, I don't really need that. And John and I, we've both talked about that with people. It's like, you have these moments, like when you take something out and you're like, whoa, whoa that didn't really make any difference. And then you realize you don't need it anymore. So, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of guys that um, where their coach has them doing various protocols and they don't make sense physiologically or they come to me and they ask me about it. And I'm like, well, why is he doing this? And they're like, I don't know. One of my things is your coach should be always be able to explain to you why he's doing a particular thing from a physiological standpoint. Right. You really should. Like guys that are pulling water like two and three days out, like I'm like, OK, well, you're, you're going to spike your aldosterone levels. Um, you're going to end up holding more water over the course because your body's going to be like, hey, I don't have water coming in, so let me um, let me see what I can do to um, increase the amount of aldosterone that I'm going to release to try to retain water. So um, a lot of the things that when these guys come to me and they show me what their coach wants them to do, I ask, like, why does he want you doing this? And then they can't explain it. I'm like, your coach should always be able to explain it from a physiological standpoint. You're not that different. Mm, right. The only things that tend to be different with guys are um, guys tend to, to fill out differently on different food selections. Um, so it's like one guy can fill out great on like say jasmine rice for another guy. It might be tortillas for another guy. It might be junk food. So guys tend to fill out differently on different food sources. And, you know and that's, the, that's one thing that tends to be really, really individualistic. What's what's the reasoning for that? I, I, I don't know that. Really? I literally like I would, I would love to say like I could tell you. Um, I don't know why some guys fill out better on. I, I know guys that can literally fill out on oatmeal, whereas the next guy, if he eats oatmeal, nothing happens. Wow. So I like from a physiological standpoint, I can't tell you like why somebody would fill out more, and that's the part that usually comes back to trial and error. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you just have to work with a guy. Um, I can tell you, almost can never go wrong with too much sodium though. 
Like the more sodium you can dump into a guy to fill out, uh, the better. Right. Oh. Okay. So it sounds like, like you said, trial and error is the biggest thing. Because I was going to say it's, it also sounds like that a lot of coaches or, or even the competitors themselves, it's it's a broad stroke. I mean, you have this general information, but everybody's different, right? Like you said, someone might fill out on Jasmine Rice. Uh, you don't know that until you try it. So, I mean, is it a common practice to do these trial runs to, to act like you're going to compete before you're competing? Make sure you're yeah. you know, see where you're going to go with it before the, the time actually hits. Yeah. And anytime it's a new protocol, that's usually a lot of times what guys want to do to feel comfortable is maybe say three weeks out, mm -hmm. three or four weeks out when they're, they're lean enough to kind of see what kind of differences that type of peaking protocol is going to make. You do a little trial run for the week and then, and then, you know, you basically fill, spill, um, and then dry out and wake up. And then you kind of, then you can do your practice loading to see how the body's going to respond to different food sources. So yeah, usually if it's something different <clears throat> than three or four weeks out, you'll run a trial run just to kind of see how the body's going to respond to those things. Gotcha. What kind of effect in your opinion does that have on a guy's mental health or a gal, a guy or, or, or lady's mental health going through all that? Is it just, are they so hyper-focused at that point in time that it's just like a, uh, this, this drive that, that can't be wavered or is it sometimes like the, the stress of that? Do you, do you ever see anybody like fold over on themselves because of the weight of all, all of that's happening there? You know, I mean, you're going to be, <clears throat> you're already so stressed out from a physiological standpoint by the time a show rolls around because you've been hypocaloric for so long and doing all the cardio and lack of sleep and all that kind of stuff. One of the biggest things you can have, um, is that stress relief of knowing that you're peaking protocol, that you've done it and that you feel comfortable with it. Mm. So the, the more uh, stress relief that you have during that week, a lot of times the better from the simple mindset of it's a pretty big deal to want to get your cortisol down also during that week, right? So you want to have as, as few stressors going on in your life as possible. Right. Uh, you've already created so much cortisol release over the course of those months going into the show from being hypocaloric, from all the excess training, from the stress of, you know, going into the show and trying to be ready and people create their own anxieties internally about competing anyway. So if somebody feels very confident about their peaking protocol going in, at least that's one less thing they're having to worry about. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's a pretty big thing. Like I said, it's not going to, if you're peaking, uh, if your peak week is, is, you know, if you dial that in and nail it a hundred percent, you're probably going to get a 2% better look. And now that might be the difference at those pro levels and between the guy who's going to take first and the guy that's going to take third or something. But yeah, it can absolutely ruin the whole months and months and months of your work leading into the show. If you blow it. Yeah. So it's, if a guy's had some good trial runs with a certain protocol and it goes into a show, uh, then he can, like I said, that's one less thing he has to worry about. Uh, heading into that time. But the biggest thing is I always tell guys, if you're lean enough, you know, it's, it's tough. Cause like if you, if you get inside out peeled, you're and you're inside out peeled two weeks before the show, um, you're probably going to be fine. Okay. So something I don't see enough and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see enough about support systems surrounding the individual. And this could go for competitors or just for someone who's trying to just make some, some uh, weight loss gains or just become, you know, uh, leaner or, or, or more muscular, whatever, uh, just in, in general practice. Uh, but support system surrounding that person, you know, it, it seems like that we need a good support system, especially when you're dealing with things like stress. You know, you talk about your cortisol being raised and, and everything just kind of hitting on you at once, especially with the caloric deficit that you've had. And it just, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of everything all at once that's happening right now. Do we ever talk about how a support system surrounding that person is so important? 
You know, I hear that sometimes, but my other part about that is if you're going to compete um, and you're going to um, destroy the relationships that you have in your life because you cannot control your, your own stress, mm-hmm. your internal stress, then you don't need to be competing. Right. So competing should be something to remember. It's, it's a voluntary choice that a person is making in their life, and they more than likely have relationships you know, going into that competition so if you can't, if you don't, if you don't have enough self-discipline for the part of your your emotional self-discipline to not be a complete asshole to everybody involved in your life, then you probably should not be competing. So I agree that it's easier for some people, or probably easier for everybody, to have a, a good support system in their life. But there's plenty of people who compete without that. But I'll say, if you do have people in your life that are supporting you through the process, then it's probably a good idea not to be an asshole to those people and then say, oh, well, I'm getting ready for a show. No, there's lots of people that compete that aren't assholes to the people that are supporting them. And that's a big thing. People like to fall on that. Well, I'm hungry, I'm tired. Yeah, but you chose to do this. So make a conscientious choice to say, well, I'm not gonna be an asshole to the people who are actually here trying to support me as I do this. Yeah. I think one complexity there is just the ego being wrapped up in this process or, or in the competition itself. As some folks may get into it to the degree to where they feel like they have to do this. And so it's still voluntary, don't get me wrong, but it takes away some of that that the feeling of it being voluntary. They feel like they have to do this because if they don't, they're a failure. If they don't, then they didn't follow through, you know, if, if they didn't do something. And so therefore they may push themselves too hard. And I, I just wonder how much a, 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 an anticipated support system around a person, like very calculated, if, if they would do that might help to get them through, or it might help them if they do have to back out, not to feel like such a failure, not to feel like they have, you know, just decimated Every everything that was good in their life that they've worked for for the past couple of years, or maybe not just feeling like a failure themselves, but feeling like they're failing the people that are supporting them around them because they've been supporting them for so long, including their coaches and things right, like that. Yeah. Right. So generally speaking, though, when the people who are genuinely there in your life that that care about you more times than not, if it comes to a point where you're having to pull out of a show, they're probably going to support that decision as well. So mm-hmm. most of the time, I think it's our own. Uh, uh, the way we internalize things where we think we're disappointing people, like in those circumstances where it's something we've chosen to do and we feel like if we pull out that they're going to be disappointed in us, but that's rarely the case, right? Like I can't think of any cases I've ever known where a competitor pulled out of a show and somebody else said, well, I'm so disappointed you pulled out of that show. I don't know that I've ever heard that. I think that's something we internalize mm-hmm. and right. we end up kind of, proje- kind of projecting about us, back out is that we're kind of disappointed in ourselves for not seeing a process through. Uh, and then we think other people are going to be disappointed in us. But that's mostly about our own, the way we're in, internalizing that process. Yeah. And this this scenario might be even more apt to just your everyday someone who, uh, as a hobby or as a, as a weight loss or muscle gain um, program, just personally for them, they may go through, I know they go through a lot of ups and downs. You know, the self-esteem and the ego is wrapped up in, you know, can I drop 50 pounds? Can I get rid of this muffin top or whatever the case may be? And uh, having a support system around them, I think, is also very important because they're not competitors, because they're just your average everyday Joe. And they're just trying to make it, you know, carrying a 40 hour plus a week job and, and raising a family and you know, all the things that comes with life, you know, that you've got to try to balance out those things. So, uh would you say the same applies to them as far as, you know, whether or not, because I, I, I do believe that it is mostly personally internalized. It's the individual who projects, you know, this person thinks I'm a failure because I'm still 20 pounds overweight. 
right? The, the person probably doesn't even notice they're worrying about their own things. You know, anxiety is a is a uh, it's a conspiracy theory that we tell about ourselves, basically. And so that person's anxious about their stuff and not so much worried about me. But that person there, the, the one that's overweight, internalizes that and has problems with um, adjusting accordingly because they have that self-esteem issue also wrapped into the whatever goals they're not attaining. Um, so how about a support structure there? Can you give us any insight into, into how that might play a role? Well, I mean, it would be similar uh, from the standpoint of if you got people in your life who genuinely like love you and care about you and are, are you know want to see you, um, you're like, hey, this is important to me and I want to do this and say, okay, well, you know, I absolutely support you through this process. Most of the stuff is just like the emotional support, right? So as long as it's not, <clears throat> as long as it's not detracting from the emotional uh, support, which I mean, you guys have probably heard cases where, where there's cases like where it's you either have friends or family or whatever. It's like, why are you trying to lose weight? And then they can try to sabotage those efforts or things like that. Mm-hmm. Is it really kind of comes back to just setting good boundaries, right? Most of your life's going to be about setting boundaries in your relationships. And so like if you have people, uh, whether it's family members or friends or whatever that are, they're not respecting those boundaries. You're respecting that, Hey, you want to be, you want to feel better. You want to lose weight. That that's, that's, that's your own personal choice. And if they can't respect that it means they're not respecting your boundaries. So those people eventually to people who ask me stuff, you know, questions about those particular topics. I'm like, well, then they just have to go. Like you have to say, okay, well, here's the boundary and you continue to cross it. You, you know, you're a habitual line stepper. And so like, you got to go now. So you, you have to make a choice that you're either going to have people in your life that don't respect your boundaries and they're going to constantly intrude on them and make your life, you know, essentially worse than it has to be. Or you're going to have people, or you're going to cut those people out and say, okay, here's my boundaries, respect them. And your life will get better because you're, you've, you've filled it up with people who do respect your boundaries and respect you and consistently show that. Mm-hmm. Why do you think those people would not respect what you're trying to do? Like if it's weight loss or anything like that, you think it's something inside themselves that makes them feel better if you're not trying to better yourself? Well, that that's generally the, the natural response, right? Like it's such a weird thing to me, but I mean, we, we all know internally from an intuitive standpoint, that's probably the case that if somebody else, it's, we're trying to better ourselves and somebody else is constantly trying to sabotage those efforts, then it's, it's about how they feel about them. You, you generally don't find somebody that's just out there really living their best life, doing their best. That's consistently putting down on other people. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what's that one saying I can't think of it this morning is that uh, you know, you're never going to find somebody hating on you who's actually doing really well. Right. People who are doing really well, they're more focused on uh, the f- further um, cultivation of the life that they're trying to create uh, rather than getting sidetracked uh, and talking either talking shit on the life that other people are trying to create or trying to sabotage their, their efforts. So um, generally, yeah, if somebody's going to come to you and they're like, you know, oh, you know, like, I don't know why you're doing this. Why can't you just be happy with you or whatever? And then saying, you know, if you're, you know, whether it's your partner or whether it's a family member or a friend says, hey, I really want to lose weight to feel better. Say, okay, well, I 100% support you in that. And if, you know, like, instead of trying to guilt trip you when it's like when you go out to eat together or do whatever, you just support them out throughout that process. So it doesn't detract from your own life to support somebody who's trying to better themselves. So that's kind of a weird psychological thing to be clearly is their own insecurities that are bleeding out into those particular relationships. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's huge because if someone is trying to hate on you or, or whatever, they're not supportive of whatever your endeavor is. And it's actually quite seemingly the reverse. 
then there's something wrong with that person, right? So you have to call that out. And, and I love how you put setting the boundaries, set the boundaries there for how much further you're willing to go with this person in your life, because it may be time well, either, to detach. Well, allow them to keep overstepping their boundaries because they don't respect you or care about, um, care about, really don't, they don't care about you. It's more about uh, them um, inflicting their own beliefs into your personal ideology. Um, or they're going to say, yeah, I care about you and whatever it is. Like, this is a good thing in your life. And I, I care about you um, having fulfillment in that regard. Then, yeah, I'll support you in this. Those are real to me. Those are really easy decisions. Mm. So then either they're, if they don't, they're going to keep crossing your boundaries then they got to go. Right? Yeah. Yeah. For you, that that's, it sounds like an easy decision. For others, it might not be. And they might have, once again, a lot of self-esteem and ego wrapped up in the relationship itself. And if that deteriorates... And they feel like a part of themselves is, you know, is being deteriorated as well. And so having to make some of those hard choices, I think, is important. And the reason why a conversation like this, I, I think, is important is because it might not even occur to them to have this to have this internal dialogue with themselves about whether or not this person is actually beneficial for them or not. Um, they need to take a step back and kind of assess the situation, assess the relationship and, and move forward from there. Yeah, and you make a good point there is a lot of people have way too much of their own personal identity wrapped up in certain relationships, whether than having cultivated their own sense of self and their own um, their own strong sense of personal identity. A huge part of their own identity is actually wrapped up in the relationships they have, which is pretty detrimental to um, your kind of your sense, your overall sense of self and your identification. Yeah. So, you know, you like you should be able to exist and have your own sense of autonomy without that relationship existing. I'm not saying if somebody goes and you're not going to miss them or it's not going to hurt. I mean, that's what we go through when we build meaningful relationships. But if your identity is a part of the relationship, a part of your identity is the, those relationships, then that's a problem in itself. Because then if the relationship goes bad or that somebody's not respecting your boundaries um, or that person doesn't have your best interest in mind for their own life or respecting those things. And you have your own personal identity. Part of that's been cultivated in that relationship. Then when the, you can only be as, as happy or as fulfilled as the state of those relationships in your life at that time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that means you're allowing somebody else to kind of dictate how you get to feel each and every day. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that that's, that's, all the more reason why it's so important that we stay healthy and that we, you know, we feel good about ourselves and that's individualized because the better I feel about myself, the better I feel, the more confident I feel about my life with or without that person that I'm in a relationship with. I know that I'm going to be okay and, and less of my self-esteem is tied up in that relationship. And so having a relationship with myself is the most important thing. And I need to know myself and I need to work on myself, improve myself and, you know, a lot of us do that by our, our, you know, building of our body, the goals that we have in, in fitness and nutrition and, and being a healthy person inside and out. And so having said that, uh, let's talk if we can about, uh, about the kind of foods that we eat. Okay. If, if, if we, if we could, let's, let's start with the kind of foods that are best for losing weight. When people want to lose weight, they want to say they want to tone up. Let's, let's put it that way. They want to tone up. Uh, what are some of the best starting points that we could have just for your average Joe to start uh, reaching their goals in general? Well, I think the probably the single most important factor to really understand for the majority of people is to try to get rid of the idea behind, say, good foods and bad foods. And one of the reasons why is because of that mental, that psyche part 
of, of understanding that. So a lot of times when people have, they build these very direct connotations with the food being good or being bad, then eating those particular foods can often dictate how they're feeling about themselves as well. And you see this a lot where somebody, they, they're on point with their diet and then they fall off and then they don't just fall off at that point. The, the, the bus goes off the cliff, it, it, it tumbles down the cliff, explodes into flames, everybody's dying, and then they, they can't seem to recover. And a huge part of that, I think, is because, well, there's multiple reasons. It's going to be different for everybody. But one of them, I think, is because people attach that eating this is bad because this is a bad food, and they attach certain language to foods. And then that plays a role in their own psyche, right? So if you're like, Eating chocolate is fattening, so that's bad for you. So now I've eaten chocolate, now that I'm bad. So a lot of people may not be willing to dig that deep, but a lot of times that's what's happened. When you when you disassociate that, you literally just look at the the first level of what food really is, and it's just energy, right? Mm-hmm. It's just energy. So if somebody's just trying to lose weight, the first thing to understand is let's see, do they have certain relationships with foods that are going to impact that process? If you can't rearrange those relationships, the process will be much harder than it really has to be. Because inevitably, somebody's going to have times where they they stray from, say, their diet, the foods they've selected that they want to use on the diet, because that's those are the foods they can be consistent with and get into an energy deficit with, right? That's how you're going to lose weight. Right. You're going to wake up every day and you're going to choose foods that help you get into an energy deficit over the course of those of those 24 hours and over the course of those seven days and over the course of those 30 days. That There's no other way. That's how you're going to lose weight. So when you attach very direct emotional connotations to particular food sources, what that can do is that can be the very thing that shifts you off and keeps you from staying um, strict to what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Now, for me, for example, I'll, I'll give you like I do better dieting with with bro foods. I do what I call bro food. So it's my diet will be like egg whites, oatmeal, jasmine rice, you know, sweet potatoes, fish, chicken, turkey, very lean beef, stuff like that. The usual bro foods that you would think of. I can't do flexible dieting because I have so many trigger foods. Um, the years that I was trying to gain weight, that I was trying to grow, I ate everything under the sun. So I, I taught myself how to eat a tremendous amount of food. And the thing is, it's like there's certain foods that are trigger foods for me. And so it's, it's the, for those particular foods, you create the understanding that it's not that this food quote, is quote unquote bad. It's just that if I start eating it, I'm going to eat a lot of it. So that would be phase two. Number one, the number one phase is trying to disassociate. And that may sound like it's, um, it's hypocritical that, you know, well, you're saying that there's no good foods, no bad foods. And you say, well, trigger foods are bad. Trigger foods, it's not that the food itself is bad. It's just that your response to it is <clears throat> tends to be a roadblock in terms of your goal setting, right? Your goal achievement. So number one is trying to disassociate from that there's good foods and bad foods to kind of rebuild that inner dialogue about, okay, this is not necessarily, this is an energy source and certain energy sources make me feel a little better, um, literally phys- physically, because you guys know this as well as I do. Sometimes you eat certain foods and the next day you feel like you're hungover. Yeah. Um, I'm like that with pizza, right? I love pizza, but when I eat pizza the next day, I'm sluggish and feel like shit. Mm. 
So it's not that pizza is a bad food. It's just that I eat a shit ton of it. And then physiologically, the next day, I'm not in prime form for training or activity, right? So if I'm trying to eat foods, there's foods that have a better effect outcome on performance, right? So foods are going to be about performance in that way. There's certain foods that either detract or enhance performance. So detract or removing the whole, this food is good, this food is bad. Um, that's really helpful for kids too, right? Because a huge part of, of creating eating disorders is that problems that, you know, kids get told, you know, you tell a kid's like, well, don't eat this food because that food's fattening. So then if they end up eating that food, right, they're like, well, I'm a bad person because I ate this bad food, right? Food itself is not good or bad. It's just energy. So one is associating good foods from bad foods, helping people understand that. The next, the next one is to helping the, them to understand what their potential trigger foods are. So if you have a trigger food and you're trying to lose fat, it's pretty important to avoid your trigger foods. So to remove those from the from the equation and then selling in from that point as to what's your activity level like, uh, you know, what are the foods that you do feel like you can eat pretty consistently every day to meet your uh, macronutrient requirements uh, and the foods that you can eat pretty consistently every day. Um, that uh, you're not, you know, you're not going to get sick of, so you can be very consistent in achieving that, uh, you know, that calorie deficit. Hmm. So let me break this down just a little bit. You're telling me that foods with processed sugar and other processed foods, we shouldn't determine them as bad. Is that correct? Right. Because be the thing is, yeah, absolutely. Because the thing is, like I said, at the end of the day, food. The reason why you want to do that is because, like I said, the there's so many people that have trouble staying on a diet because of how they say they, okay, so think about it this way. If somebody eats a, if they've been told that chocolate's bad and they eat a chocolate bar, right? Do you think that, that eating a single chocolate bar is really going to fuck up their diet? Right. No. Right. No. Okay. But they've been told chocolate's bad. Chocolate's mm -hmm. going to make fat. Chocolate's bad. You know, like you eat a chocolate bar. So, but eating a single chocolate bar is what? 230 calories. Okay. So you go on about your day, you go on about the next day, you get back on track. What happens with a lot of people is that when they eat a processed food like this and they eat two or 300 calories or whatever from processed food, there's an emotional response to that. So they're like, I'm a terrible person. I'm bad. Now my emotional response is, well, I might as well just fucking eat a whole bunch of this shit food. How many guys times have you guys ever heard that particular story from somebody? Right. They're yep. like, well, I ate this at dinner, so I thought, well, I, might as well, I fucked up my diet. I might as well just go ahead and eat 97,000 calories over the next day. <laughs> a lot of that is the emotional response to them breaking their diet because of the emotional connotation with those particular foods. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying 100%. I'm not saying it's okay. I don't agree with these. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not an anti-flexible dieting guy, so it sounds like I'm, I'm kind of a flexible diet. I'm not anti-flexible dieting, but I'm definitely not pro-flexible dieting. Um, I think that flexible dieting over the years turned into something where people are like, it's so fucking K to eat, make your whole diet out of Pop-Tarts and candy bars, uh, you know, and blooming onions. I'm like, no, that's not okay. You know, you're going to feel like shit. You're going to perform like shit. Um, even if you're, you know, we saw that from uh, Crow, who that's not dieter, where he did, uh, Alan Aragon and I had this conversation the other day. <clears throat> It's not just about calories. It's not just about macros because when Crow did the protein shake and ice cream, he met his, his macros and calories and he lost weight. But by the end of the 100 days, he felt like shit and he lost muscle in the process of losing that fat because he just couldn't go to the gym anymore. He had no energy. 
So his calories, his energy was coming in. It was just protein shake and ice cream, right? So he figured out how the ice cream that he could eat each day that would make up his fat and, and carbs. And then he, he added protein shakes into that. But so he lost weight, but he also lost muscle because by the end of the hunt, I think it was 100 days he did this. Um, he had no energy. He went from working on his YouTube channel for hours and hours a day to literally like it's like 15 minutes. And he just stopped going to the gym altogether over the last month. And so he lost muscle. Hmm. So clearly your food source does matter. However, let's go back to some moderation here. Could he have lost weight over the course of those hundred days and still had ice cream, you know, say each day? That's what, that's what, uh, um, Jordan, my, my client, Jordan Syatt did with his uh, Big Mac challenge. He had a Big Mac every day. Um, and he's already a little guy. He's not a big guy. I hope he doesn't hear this. He's like, he's trying to grow right now. We're trying to get him to grow. <laughs> but he had a Big Mac every day and stayed the calorie deficit and he lost seven pounds over the course of a month. You know, and he's already, he was only 150. Uh, like 154 cal, 154 pounds uh, when he started. So he lost seven pounds over the course that month, but he ate a Big Mac every day. But he didn't have this connotation that I ate McDonald's, so my life is fucked. Right. Did he change right? anything else too, or or he just added a Big Mac he into what he was normally sure, doing? Yeah, he made sure that he stayed in a calorie deficit each day and just included the Big Mac. Huh. So the Big Mac itself, was it? Is it what I would call a good food? Um, no, it's like, I don't, and Jordan made that point. He was making that point for this, those people who are like, well, my diet's blown because I've had a Big Mac or McDonald's or I've had a piece of apple pie or I've had some candy bars or whatever. It doesn't blow your diet unless you continue to fall off the wagon after you've had that meal. Right. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of likened to, uh, in, even anyone who is trying to stay sober, they're in recovery. And they, right. they blow it by having a, they had a sip, a sip of beer, had a sip of alcohol. Well, now they go on a bender because they done screwed up. And, and so what you're trying to do is diffuse that, that first drink or that first piece of chocolate cake from being the end all be all. It, it was just a small thing. Take out that emotional content out of that and yeah, just take like, it from what it is and move on. I can't see the thing is you, you, you have to be self-aware enough to know yourself too. Cause like, I can't eat a piece of chocolate cake. I just eat the whole chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. So it, that's not the chocolate cake is bad. It's just that I'm a gluttonous asshole. And then if I <laughs> eat a piece of chocolate cake, I'm going to eat the whole chocolate cake. So if I'm dieting, I'm like, I'm just not going to eat the chocolate cake. But I don't feel like I'm depriving myself because of when I'm really dieting hard, I'm trying to get lean. I'm really focused on that on that particular goal attainment. And that's very fulfilling as well. And so other people will be like, well, you're depriving yourself. I'm like, I'm not depriving myself emotionally or mentally because I have a goal that is just as meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. So for people who have goals like that, right, like competitors or whatever, so it's like, well, I don't know how you want to deprive yourself from all this stuff. Well, they, they don't feel that they're depriving themselves because this other thing is really important to them and matters to them. But getting back to your example there about, say, if you're an alcoholic, well, that'd be like your trigger food, right? It's like, you know, if an alcoholic takes a drink of something, he's just going to start drinking again. That's the key, right? It's not drinking. Well, that's trigger foods, Right. It's not that alcohol itself is bad. I can have a drink of something, right? And But I'm not an alcoholic, so I'm working from a very different paradigm. But if somebody else has, like, has, is dealing with, say, particular eating disorders, you know, they, they need to approach um, their dietary ideology, that paradigm, a little bit differently than the next person is going to have to. Because, for example, like, um, like, I'm trying to think of a food I can eat that's just not like a trigger food for me. Like a lot of um, a lot of I don't have a problem with salty foods. 
like a lot of people eat like, like salty, fatty foods. But like for me, it's mostly sweets. Mm-hmm. But if I start eating certain particular sweets, like cheesecake or brownies or cookies or cinnamon rolls, I will just eat those until I'm a blimp. Yeah. So, well, yeah, cake, I'd stay away from. But like if you get me like some like some salty, like, you know, like a big pizza, like I'll eat pizza, but I'll get full and I'm good. I'll stop. But some people pizza will be a trigger food for. So yeah, then right. they avoid eating pizza. So it's still here's the thing. So is pizza a good food or is it a bad food? Just depends on how you use it, right? Right. That's what I try to get back to. So like I don't try to associate like there's good foods and bad foods because there's people who go into contests that are like, I still want to be able I think Lane Norton talked about that. It was like he still would always eat ice cream going into his shows. And I think to myself, I was like, there's no way in hell I could never do because I love ice cream and I'll just eat tons of it. But Lane he could eat ice cream and have like 200 calories of ice cream and call it good. I'm like, who the fuck eats 200 calories of ice cream? <laughs> like 2,000 minimum. Like that's a <laughs> barrel, right? But he could do that. So it's different from person to person. So when you remove the stigma of good foods and bad foods and help people understand, well, number one, it's just energy. But then there's going to be certain foods that you're probably going to need to avoid if you want to lose weight simply because you just tend to habitually overeat on those foods. It's not that the food's bad. It's your reaction to it is. Hmm. So have you worked with any bodybuilders who have had that issue to where like cheat meals are absolutely out the window because they're, you just there's no way of stopping it once they start they're going or you just have to work really hard at finding what foods they can eat on Most that cheat meal? Most bodybuilders are, very, are pretty aware of that. Gotcha. They're pretty aware of that. If you guys get to that IFBB pro level without understanding that food can work very similar to uh, most of them, same way narcotics do. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, like, that's why uh, you don't just like get a bite of the cookie. Like when you've been starving for weeks and weeks and weeks, right. you don't take a bite of the cookie. You don't fucking take a bite of the cookie. You know you're not going to because <laughs> what it does lights up in your brain, right? From mm-hmm. a war sensory standpoint, you're like, holy shit, I got to have those cookies. So you just don't even take a bite of the cookie. I can remember being a prep and going to the store and smelling cookies, like opening up the bag in the store and just smelling <laughs> And like I just put like that was my treat. That's just smelling the cookies, but I wouldn't eat them. But most of the guys, by the time they get to that level, they already know when they're dieting. And I think that's why bro foods work so well with a lot of those guys. Number one, because they're usually so macro dominant and it's easier to figure out your calories and macros for the day with those particular foods. That's why it's the same foods over and over again with most bodybuilders. Right. But the other thing is, is like you just know you're not even going to try to fit certain things in. You're just not even going to – you're not going to try to fit in ice cream or brownies or – the other thing is, is you get super calorically low um, and, and you, you want to make sure that you're hitting certain macro counts. You don't really end up with space for junk food, right, for overly processed foods. So if you – like if you, you take a bikini competitor or whatever who's coming all the way down to like 900 calories or something – you still want to make sure she's getting enough protein in. You're going to still want to make sure that she's getting, you know, sometimes enough fat in. At that point, you're not trying to really be healthy. You're trying, you're actually displaying something on stage. It's not the epitome of health. So, but you, the thing is, you still want to make sure she's getting in. He or she's getting in, no matter who it is. Like even some guys, you bring down to um, 1,400 calories, 1,700 calories, all depending on how their body responds. Everybody's different, but right. The reason why it's better to use those whole food sources for competitors like that is simply because you want to make sure you're hitting those macro requirements for the day. And that's easier to do with whole food kind of bro food style sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the trigger food for me, 
Aldi's. I don't know if you have Aldi's where you're at, but Aldi's yeah, has I these. Aldi's. Yeah, I do too. They have the best produce, but they have these peanut butter chocolate cookies, and they're like a dollar fifty. They're like nothing, and I can't even look at them really because if <laughs> I do, then I just gravitate. And, and I'm not. I would have to go get some today. Is it wait? Is it the kind that's got the peanut butter? Where it's like the soft peanut butter in the middle. Yeah. With the wafer on the bottom? It's not a wafer. No, it's not a wafer. It's just a chocolate coating around. It, it may, it, it's got a little bit of a cookie, of course, underneath it, but this just got the chocolate coating with the cookie on the bottom and the peanut butter in the, the middle. The cookie's on the bottom. The chocolate, the chocolate's like over the top, like a hat, like a dome, and then there's peanut butter in the middle. Yep, and it's kind of yeah, creamy peanut fun. butter. Yeah, I'll smash a thousand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one package isn't enough if I get started <laughs> on them. So trigger food, it's a real thing, and even because I have to think that you, ever, you have that moment with, with your trigger foods. This is how it works. Is literally it's hard to explain, but you stop and. Three to five minutes later, your body's like, no, eat more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if you feel like you'll just fucking keep going. Yeah. Right. No. And it becomes a mental thing, too. It's like I can't stop thinking about those cookies in the cabinet. And I'm not <laughs> I'm not super big on sweets, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I can eat a piece of cake or a piece of pie, and I'm done. It, it really doesn't do it. To, it takes something. And I, I'm a sucker for peanut butter. And so when something has some really good peanut butter, Reese's Cups, uh, all these cookies, things like that, it, it has gravity, and it pulls me in. Um, and I say, I'm gonna have I, to look at those cookies today. Yeah, just just be careful, man. I kind of feel bad now for for. <laughs> no, no, don't feel bad. <laughs> but because uh, they're dangerous. But uh, next time we talk to him, he's gonna be falling off the wagon. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Weigh six hundred pounds and have stock in Aldi. But uh, no trigger foods. I never really thought about. It. I, I just consider that trigger foods are mostly probably sugars and carbs, right? Uh, like processed well, sugars yeah, and, and carbs. Is, we do know there's that that manufactured, you know, and I I saw that look in your eye. Like, so you don't consider like overly processed foods bad foods, but that gets back to what I was saying. There's going to be overly processed foods that you can eat that are not trigger foods for you that you can take home by seven. You're like, yeah, I don't care. Right. For the next person that eats that, they're going to eat a thousand of it, right? Like a thousand of them. Mm-hmm. So for you, it's literally like it's out of all things, it's a little, uh, it's a little peanut butter you know, chocolate cookie, mm-hmm. right? But the next person next to you might eat two of them go, yeah, they're okay. And they're just going away. And you're like, how do you do that? So that's why, like, to me, I'm like, it's not good or bad food. It's our response to them. Right. And, um, you know, that's, you know, that's why I'm like, well, let's remove the stigma from that. Let's make sure we just focus on, one of the things I try to come back to is telling the person, rather than focusing on what you can have is eating, eating more um, of specific foods mm. and rearranging like the mental and the psyche evaluation uh, of, of like your diet or foods or stuff like that is so huge, right? Because if you're like, it's as soon as we say, tell somebody they can't have something, they want more of that very thing. It's right. a scarcity effect. It's a real psychological condition. Yes. So it's a scarcity effect. But as soon as you, you tell somebody, well, you can have all of this that you want, that's a very different shift in mindset. Because you tell somebody, look, you can eat all of the protein and fruits and vegetables that you want to, and you'll absolutely continue to get lean. That's pretty true. It's hard to overeat if you just limit it to, I'm going to have protein sources, animal protein sources, vegetables, and I'll have some fruits to finish it up. Pretty much going to be impossible to just get fat on that. Mm-hmm. So you take somebody who's really obese, and you're, you try to, you don't take somebody who's really obese and has, has really what I call really shitty dietary habits, where they are eating processed foods top to bottom with no caloric control right like mm-hmm. that's that's bad that's the behavior that we don't want and you say well i'm going to put you on you know 1200 calories of like chicken breast and broccoli a day that doesn't work for everybody 
Although we have seen through multiple studies that very low calorie diets are actually the most effective. So some people preach against that. But if you there's a multitude of meta-analysis out there where very low calorie diets are the most effective because people see the greatest amount of results from them very early on. So that actually motivates them to continue the weight loss. Mm -hmm. So that's just the diet Uh, in general. It's not adding cardio and things like that in. It's just the diet. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the stuff um, isn't related to physical activity. So when you look at a lot of fat loss approaches from a, from like the studies or research or stuff like that, it's just on gym pop people. Okay. So, but when you look at that, very low calorie diets are often like that. But what I was getting back to, cause I don't lose my train of thought was like when you're trying to help somebody make a shift in their life, that's going to probably be sustainable. It's more about teaching them to eat more of these foods than restricting them from certain foods other than their trigger foods. Right. So, or just finding an alternative to a trigger food. Right. So like I really enjoy this food, but I just overeat the shit out of it. Mm -hmm. Well, then what's an alternative to that? You know, like I have like I love chocolate. So like I have like you can I can make uh, chocolate casein pudding like at night. I will like you can't store protein as fat. It's pretty much impossible. Um, So like I can eat I can use like the like Greek yogurt that's like got almost no fat and no carbs in it and Mm -hmm. put put some Splenda in that with my um, chocolate casein. And it tastes amazing, but like after I eat the bowl, I'm good. Like it's not like eating. It's that that combination that you were talking about. And that's what I was going to get back to. That combination of manufactured processed foods that is um, sugary, salty, fat is the one that lights up those reward centers in the brain that makes us want to overeat that particular combination. Mm-hmm, right. So we have to kind of figure out what foods trigger us that part of our in our brain that causes us to eat more of that and just and and doing our best to eliminate those yeah right yeah no you mentioned pizza earlier and it it reminds me we have a good friend chris swan from soul motivation records he actually uh, had joined the overeaters anonymous 12-step program because he had such an issue and pizza was a big thing for him he wouldn't just eat a pizza i think he would eat multiples and, and he would it was a you know became a self-loathing thing and it started this uh, snowball effect of just you know, bad, bad chemicals fire, you know, and bad things going on off in his body. And he had to really get help for that. And so that salty food with, you know, loaded with carbs, of course. And, you know, you can't forget also that the, the red sauce has all the sugar in it and things like that. We don't, yeah. you know, a lot of people don't think about no, that oftentimes. It's supposed under that salty, sweet, sugary combination. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so very, very, very dangerous. I, I just, for me, it's, it's the peanut butter, you know, cookie or it's the Reese cup type of thing, right. you know? And so that's, that's what I tend to gravitate to, but it's, it's, it's funny how people gravitate toward different things that trigger them and knowing your own triggers. Uh, let's go through the steps one more time. First of all, we diffuse the negative connotation of good food and bad food. And so this is a strategy. It's an approach. Um, right. It, it's like, it's like when you hear someone say, well, alcohol is bad. It's bad for everybody. Well, you know, some people do okay with alcohol. They can have a drink socially and be okay. Right. They don't like go I, off the I, wagon. I, that's a great point. Like I can have a glass of wine now and then and I'm fine with it, right? But it's, mm-hmm. it's all about the person. Right. Yeah. And so number two is know your trigger foods, right? You got to know right. which foods that you as a person, not me, not Colt, not Paul, who do you or what do you, um, what triggers you? What, what right. foods cause you to, to just fall off the hill in the bus and just murder everybody. And so remind right. remind me of what number three is again, Paul. In those yeah, phases. there somebody just if they're just looking for fat loss, it's about understanding um, basically your life, lifestyle and the amount of, of calories that you need to be at each day. Uh, so you take somebody, one of the things I go through is like I look at somebody, you take somebody who's, let's say they're 70 pounds overweight, 
it's going to be a completely different approach at that point for them than somebody who's been lifting weights for 15 years and is in moderately good shape that, you know, has a different kind of desk job, has different digestive issues. Like I just took a, a client the other day who's got, he's clearly got, he said he's having a lot of digestive issues. So rather than just throwing foods at him, I have to look at his current diet, see what the hell it is he's eating in his current diet that's potentially causing all these digestive issues because there's something in his current diet too, isn't it? So from there is when the more intricate kind of process starts. So if I take somebody who's like 70 pounds overweight, I've had clients like that, 70 to 100 pounds overweight, you know, and they're like, well, I'm lifting. Like my focus, I have one guy that's close to 400 pounds right now. My focus for him, I just, I want him walking. I want him to walk. I just want him to move more. <clears throat> he, um, he has a very sedentary job. So the, my biggest thing is you don't burn uh, a lot of calories in the gym. Lifting weights does not burn a lot of calories. Doing cardio doesn't burn a lot of calories. So the one thing I, I really try to get him doing is moving a lot, a lot of moving, getting his non-exercise activity thermogenesis up as high as possible. Because mm -hmm. you take somebody that's very sedentary, um, and, you know, we're going to change their diet around. And that was the thing for him is just getting back to us like, okay, what are all the foods that you know you enjoy eating? You know, like you can eat these foods data and you enjoy eating these foods. So then we build this diet around those foods, making sure that we're meeting this particular caloric requirement. But then the other thing is just getting moving more, right? It's very sedentary. So I don't want to drop his calories down so low that he's starving all the time, which creates more and more opportunities for him to binge, right? Like it's like where your mind just is like, okay, I can't take anymore and I'm going to. So I don't want him to be starving all the time. And then, so I want him to just be moving more. And then another approach that I have with a lot of clients um, is they all depending, like it's all lifestyle stuff. I have another guy, just to give you an example, who owns a lot of, he, he owns a lot of Snap-on shops. You know the Snap-on tools? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. He owns those, um, those businesses. So one of the things I have, he travels a lot and he, um, He's like for a while, well, he's traveling out now. For a while, he wasn't, so he could be more um, exact with his food intake. But now that he's traveling a lot more, um, it's more difficult for him to do meal prep and things like that. So what I literally did was I moved him to the, a 5-2 approach where two days of the week he diets with super low calories, and the other five days he eats at just how he wants. And he's continued to lose weight that way. Mm, wow. Yeah, so two two of the days a week, um, and that's the five two approach is backed by a ton of research. Hmm. Five two approach is he basically has between five to eight hundred calories on those days. Um, that's all he has for two days a week. But the other five days of the week, he really just eats what he wants to. Wow, and he's continuing to lose weight with that. So what what is the research showing the reasoning for that being? Well, I mean, the, the two days of the week, it, you're creating this massive calorie deficit. Um, and for most people, they were already, so you think about this. If you take somebody that's eating a specific way, five days or seven days a week. Now I have two of the days of the week. I'm going to reduce their calories very tremendously, but just two days a week. I'm still ending up with that massive calorie deficit by the end of the seven days. Gotcha. Mm. That is uh, right. very low caloric intake too. Five to 800. Right. That's, that's not very much at all. That's no, but huge you, deficit. when you think of it this way, he just feels like he's dieting two days a week anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. So like a lot of people that put their clients on linear approaches where they're eating the same amount seven mm -hmm. days a week. So they're hungry all fucking seven days. But if you can take somebody, you can put them in a very slight caloric deficit where they're not really that hungry, but now make them fast for 24 hours one day a week. 
they end up with this huge energy deficit. So they still see fat loss, but they're not suffering every day. Right. There's lots of little tricks that each person can respond to. And that's where the individual process comes with each person. Um, some people like my, like he loves that five, the five, two approach. He has no problem having two days a week where he's going to eat like a, a more like say two, 400 calorie meals or one 800 calorie meal. But then the other five days of the week, he gets to have whatever he wants and he continues to see fat loss happen. Wow. Right. You had mentioned cardio a little bit earlier. What's your recommendation on cardio? Does, I mean, does a certain style of equipment just out being outside moving around or is it just about getting your heart rate up and burning a certain amount of calories? What's your, what's your recommendation? I prefer outside work because there's um, we do know like the greenhouse effect is legitimate for its terms of reducing anxiety, uh, stress reduction and those kind of things. So being outside and actually moving outside has a, a restorative effect, um, you know, on yourself, you know, psychologically, mentally, too. So I like that better uh, than doing like treadmill inside work, things like that uh, much. I like that much better. So. Generally, from a cardio standpoint, for it all depends. If somebody's trying to gain mass, I still like to have them do cardio because, again, it help, can help with the restorative effect in terms of recovery and nutrient partitioning. Uh, if somebody's in a a more in a, a more like they're trying to they're in a fat loss phase, then that comes back to like what is their. I always look at one of the things I always look at is what's their occupation. So if somebody's got a desk job, they're probably going to do more cardio. But if somebody has a very active lifestyle, they may not be doing any or they may be doing very little. So it all really depends on the person and what the rest of their life looks like. Gotcha. And so, Paul, I'm I'm about to turn 42, okay? And I'm starting to see the metabolism slow down. You know, it have been, you know, slowly over, over the course of, I don't know, the past five, six years. Uh, and so well, I'm, our, our metabolism actually starts to slow down in our 20s. Okay. Okay, it actually starts to slow down by about anywhere from two to three percent by the time you hit your twenties. No, no, so it's just we see, we see the accumulative effect of that by the time we hit our forties, where we realize that you know when you're eighteen and you're smashing Burger King three times a day and whatever, and you're like, oh man, I don't know why you guys have to die so hard. It's like, <laughs> okay, well, just wait till you're thirty-five and then forty-five, and you'll understand why. Yeah. So is that that three percent? Is that a static number, or does it does it continue to yes, de- decline by that ratio? You go look across from all the data that we have. So I believe it's something like it starts dropping at a certain percentage, and it just continues on the rest of your life. And so does that coincide with testosterone beginning to? Um, the testosterone levels depleting at that point in time too. So I, I, I've heard it, that that happens as well in your later twenties or maybe even earlier twenties. It's one of the things. Well, number one, we start losing um, um, fast switch muscle fiber um, generally in our late twenties to early thirties. So it's also a drop just in BMR. Um, and I do think for people who are active, if you're trying to save off shit like sarcopenia and things like that, I think for people who are active and they're lifting weights, the rate might be a little less. So a lot of this is looking at people who are not lifting or things like that. Sure. So, but you're going to start losing fast switch muscle fiber, um, regardless, um, in your late twenties, early thirties. And anecdotally, you guys should realize that because when you look at, say, for example, like professional athletes, right? When are they in their prime? Whenever more professional football players who need to be more explosive, when are they in their prime? They're usually in their prime, uh, what is it, early to mid-20s, right? right. Mm-hmm. And then by the time guys hit their early 30s, they start that decline. Uh, and what starts to decline? Explosiveness, speed, all of those kind of things, right, start to go. There's nothing you can do. There's no training you can get around that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, by the time that you get to be in your 40s, you're going to be working with a little bit of slower metabolism, um, 
You're going to probably going to be working with less fast switch muscle fiber and things like that. And a lot of guys try to say, well, you maybe you can train this or do whatever. That's just, we're all dying. We're all. <laughs> dying. Well, that's on, on that bright note. No, let me, let me, uh, let me take it to, uh, I guess, uh, the nutritional direction. What's the best way to counterbalance that declining, uh, rate of metabolism, uh, as you get older, like, like let's say into your mid thirties and early forties. Um, because I still feel great. I, I, I'm, I'm probably, I feel better than probably what I have in for most of it, since my early twenties, for sure. Um, as far as being in the gym, staying active, my energy levels, I don't have like a, like a typical office job, but I don't have an active job either. I just work with, with people, clients in the mental health field. So it's, it's not like I'm doing physical activity during those days. I'm doing a lot of sitting, talking. I do a lot of walking too, and, and, and moving around. Um, but I'm trying to find that optimal level, not just for now, but to carry me into my mid and late forties, I, I don't want to lose this this momentum that I've got now, and so I just I'm looking for all nutritional hacks or just advice recommendations that's going to help me to kind of maintain and even grow if, if at all possible. Yeah, and that does come back to it sounds like I'm going to um, be a hypocrite on my earlier point. One of the things is that when you get older, when you're trying to really put your health first, I think one of the most important things you can do is make sure to keep your inflammation levels as low as possible. So the more inflamed that you are, basically low-grade chronic inflammation is connected to just about every major disease known to man. So the older we get and the less inflamed we are, I'm not talking about acute inflammation, like when you get injured or whatever. I'm talking about chronic inflammation is basically, like I said, it's connected to everything. So if you, one of the things you can do to help, since you know you're going to be dealing with a little bit slower metabolism, is that make sure that your inflammation levels are as low as possible because inflammation will also play a role um, in insulin resistance, right? The more inflamed you are, the less insulin sensitive that you're going to be. So one of a couple of things that you can do is making sure that you actually stay as lean as possible. Um, you know, within like some, if some guys can, you know, if they can get into single digits and stay there, that's great. But just getting down to what I consider, say, 10, 11% body fat range and maintaining that because the truth is like, well, I still have guys in their forties, like how much more mass? Like, okay, you got to be in a pretty good calorie surplus to really build muscle. Dude, you're in your forties. Just got to accept that that time's passed. Mm -hmm. If you missed out on your twenties, man, your teens and your twenties for building muscle, I don't know what to tell you. It's like, those were your prime years, right? So, like for really pounding food or taking drugs or whatever it is you want to do. Mm -hmm. um, those are your prime years. So, in your 40s, I think it's really important to worry about staying lean, so keeping your diet on point. I still think that, you know, you can look amazing. You can, There's plenty of dudes in their 40s that look way better than dudes in their 20s. Mm -hmm. Most of those guys stay really lean. And a huge part, I think, is from a health standpoint to maximize everything. I think getting lean, staying lean is a big part of it because you're going to improve your nutrient partitioning uh, when you do that. But keeping your inflammation levels low um, getting your blood work done, seeing what your C-reactor protein looks like and things like that. And then, of course, making sure and take, taking care of your testosterone levels um, as well. So we tend to have more stress a lot, a lot of times in, in our 40s just due to life stuff. Uh, a lot of times in teenagers, regardless of how stressed teenagers think they are. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in our 40s, because we have mortgages, usually divorces, sometimes multiple divorces. I don't have multiple divorces. <laughs> But, uh, you know, child support and then just jobs and things like that. So we tend to have a little bit extra life stress, which can impact cortisol levels, which I said, you're keeping cortisol at a healthy level 
and keeping inflammation at a healthy level, those things are important. Uh, but reducing chronic inflammation as much as possible is one of the biggest things that I, when I talk to guys in their 40s about what's the most important thing they could be doing, that's one of them. Mm. Is making sure you got your inflammation. So supplementing with like fatty fish in your diet at least once or twice a week and supplementing with fish oil, um, you know, just making sure you're removing as many of those pro-inflammatory foods as possible uh, to just try to keep inflammation down. And that's kind of what I like to think of. Somebody said, well, you said there's no good foods or bad foods. And I, I didn't I, I didn't say you couldn't have any of them. I'm saying eliminating them from a large type of diet. Because like I said, if a guy comes to me in his 40s and he's eating those every single day at some meal, you know, then getting rid of those, getting rid of those particular those foods that are pro-inflammatory foods because they're overly processed can be a great step one just in getting him to feel better because now he's dealing with less inflammation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's golden. It's golden stuff. And so I, I just want to make sure once again that I can optimize, and I want our listeners to have that same information to optimize into the our, our early. Uh, early 40s and into our mid 40s and, and then beyond because a lot of times what we talk about at optimal levels we talk about you know when when we're feeling great and we're getting pumped we're getting big in the gym we're, we're doing everything right all the systems are firing like they should be but um, there's also there is like you said we're gonna die we're all actively dying as we well not actively but we are all on our way to the there's, same oh, yeah, spot we're, yeah, we're dying. Every, every minute every second of every minute of every hour every day we're dying right <laughs> and so it's helpful that that can be an enlightening thing though right i mean that can be something to motivate you know but that's that's honestly isn't that what the fact that this is all temporal uh, isn't that what makes honestly makes it great i mean that's that's the thing if if you lived eternally everything would lose its value Nothing would be valuable at all. Where would your motivation so, be, right? That's a, yeah, that's the other great point. Like, okay, well, if I'm just going to be here forever and we're all the Highlander and none of us are ever going to die, then I don't – yeah, I don't know. You're like, okay. Like, you could literally go to – like, what would be a prison sentence? I don't know, a thousand years. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So you – know, like, I don't know. So, like, yeah. I mean, the fact that, yeah, we're awake up, we're all dying it should be the impetus for getting up and saying I'm going to make the absolute best of the time that I have left here. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul, I don't want to, I don't want to lose this, uh, this conversation without asking you about the, uh, the sugary drinks. I know this is a hill you've been defending. Um, or the, I'm sorry, the, uh, sugar-free drinks, the, uh, the sweetener, uh-huh. sweetener drinks. As I sit here drinking my, uh, zero sugar, zero carb rock star energy drink. Uh, right. I, I noticed on Facebook, you have a post and you mentioned it at the early, at the onset of this, uh, this show. Um, something about how you got into a, a kind of a conversation, if you will, with uh, someone about whether or not artificial sweeteners are uh, detrimental for our health. Because I've heard a lot of people suggest that that is, in, in fact, the case, right? Um, well, here's the thing about that is anytime I ask those people to actually provide me with like real rock solid data, they can't do it. Right. Yeah. Like it's it's a consistent emotion. Here's the thing: my even my mentor Charles Poliquin had a he was totally fucked up in his views on like artificial sweeteners, and none of the shit he ever said was backed by fucking science, but backed by literal like studies or meta analysis. And Charles used to drive me nuts with that shit. I'm like, okay, we'll send, and he would cherry pick research. Um, one of the things that we know um, is that. Um, they used, for years they were looking at mice ingesting aspartame, right, or you know, and stuff like that. They would, well, mice uh, they metabolize artificial sweeteners very differently than we do. Plus, they were feed the amounts that they were feeding them 
like we would have to adjust. It's, it's literally not possible. If you look at the comparison, how much they were feeding the mice, you mm-hmm. know, aspartame. Like we could not really, you know, it's like pounds. We'd have to like eat pounds of artificial sweet. Nobody's eating pounds of it a day. But even then, the mice, they, their metabolisms respond very differently to artificial sweeteners. So you have to throw out any of the rat studies. And that's actually what's happened since then is like you can go, and I posted about this yesterday, is that you can go, and the American Heart Association even has the latest research up looking so people can stop feeling like, well, I'm going to have a heart attack or a stroke or anything like this. You know, because for a while they were saying, well, the, the, you know, artificial sweeteners were connected to cancer. It's the Americans. It's the Cancer Institute, actually, American Cancer Institute. It's like uh, there's nothing they've taken. They had carcin. They they actually had aspartame as one of the cars. The CDC had aspartame as a carcinogen. Can you think? Like, that's really stupid to think about, right? As artificial sweetener as a carcinogen listed on their website until like a few decades ago and got removed when they actually had more studies come out. So the, the couple of things that you consistently hear about artificial sweeteners is that it impacts your insulin levels, that it causes your body to create insulin. <clears throat> well, you can get a glucose meter and test that yourself, right? And you'll see that it has no impact on your blood glucose. So that's if somebody can do that. Every Each individual person can actually do that and test and say, well, what, is impa- what impact is artificial sweeteners having on my blood glucose? Zero, none. How? There's nothing. There's no energy in it. So the, for a while, people would say, well, it, it's, it does that because the chemicals in it. And I'm like, but OK, so when your body has there's something's insulinogenic to your body, right? There's got to be energy in it because it wants to store something. Right. So it's reacting to store that energy. Right. So it's either going to store amino acids somewhere or it's going to store, uh, store glucose somewhere in, in terms of glycogen. It's either going to put it in, in the muscle cell or you're either going to store it as fat. There's zero anything in a diet drink. There's zero There's zero carbs. There's no energy in it. So the people say, well, it's reacting um, because the artificial sweeteners are three to four, 400 times sweeter than sugar. It doesn't matter. It could be a bazillion times sweeter than sugar. There's no energy in it. So it, 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 despite the fact that it tastes this particular way, I feel like that your body was smart enough, I'm right about this, to say, hey, there's no energy in that. I don't need to secrete insulin to store something that's not there. So that's one of the things people say is they artificial sweeteners. The thing about this is like if you go by that theory that artificial sweeteners can make you fatter. Now, here's the, the cor- correlation as an equal causation thing. People would drink art- um the diet drinks with their 7,000 calorie McDonald's meal and get fatter. And people will say that's because the artificial sweetener <laughs> is causing you to secrete insulin, right? No, I'm serious. Like right. I've heard this argument before. Yeah. Like, like, so we'll said it's that diet Coke that's making you secrete insulin. So now that you're just storing all this blubber. Mm. I'm like, no God, I, I swear. I think it's probably the four big Macs and not order fries. <laughs> that's actually good. <laughs> But if that were the case, then you could literally just wake up each day and just drink zero calorie diet cokes all day long and just get fatter and fatter and fatter. Mm-hmm. Off no energy coming in. So that like that makes zero sense. Right. Yeah. It's like basically most of the fear mongering um, about artificial sweeteners, none of it can be verified. The only one that we've turned up with is that our gut microbiomes can be altered by drinking way too many um Diet drinks over the course of the day, which should make sense, right? Because everything that we eat has an effect on our gut microbiome. So mm-hmm. everything we drink can potentially change our gut microbiome. So that one really doesn't bother me. I don't really think very much about that. 
um, unless it's literally causing problems. There are some people that have um, gut problems related to artificial sweeteners. If they are, either cut them out, you know, or reduce them. So that's pretty simple. But that doesn't make them bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I just I found that interesting. And if you if if I'm so glad I didn't engage in that conversation because <laughs> I've always just considered that aspartame, artificial sweeteners, were just terrible for your health because they mimic sugars in your body. I didn't have any science to back that up. Someone I, I read that somewhere. Somebody told me something, and I would have gotten caught in probably the but same right, trap. Right, just said, somebody somewhere told me something, <laughs> right? So that stayed in your head. Exactly, that's right. And to me, in my head, until I started, you know, I, I noticed your post and started reading into it. Colt brought it up as well, and then you brought it up at the beginning of the show. Um, I, I got to thinking about it. You know, I don't have any evidence to back that up. <laughs> And how often does that happen, especially on social media? You know, we get we, we start defending these hills that we have no business trying to defend. Yeah, like Not I you, said, you're I, a researcher, I, but a lot of people, you know, we, we start defending these hills just based off some guy who told me several, several years ago because he heard that some guy read it in a magazine. Right, exactly. That's how most of it gets repeated. So, like, I had one guy uh, that I actually called out on my Facebook other day because it was like he was mad. He's like, well, I said that like six months ago. Well, we have a mutual friend, and she literally had cut out a, like most of her artificial sweeteners because he posted artificial sweeteners are poison. Like, and he works with type two diabetics, and he's a keto zealot, and you know I, I, he may even believe in the insulin to ob obesity model, which has been thoroughly debunked as well. But he posted that artificial sweeteners are poison. He makes sure to take all of his patients off of them, and she read that. And she had hit me up about it a couple of days ago. And this was like, even though he said it months ago, and she's like, she had, had, this is how emotionally, so I talked about the emotional reactions to food, is that she had cut down her artificial sweeteners and had like a, a big Diet Coke the other day and felt bad about it, despite the fact that, so she, right in her head, she read that artificial sweeteners are poison, so she has Diet Coke, which is not impacting her health negatively, but she believes that it is. Mm. Right. So I was like, but where's the, okay, so I sent her this research and I was like, there's so many people that still believe this, but they don't even, because it's like, it's, that's the example. She read from some fucking doofus who has no, when I asked him, I called him out on it and I said, well, then send me your data. He couldn't send me anything. I have had that problem with so many people. I'm like, okay, we'll debate this. Send me your data. Like, send me your data. I got into it with uh, this prep coach, this little this little douchebag named Alex Kekel, um, like from a couple of weeks ago, um, who has he got a pretty hard, I didn't even realize, he's got a pretty horrible reputation, even though he doesn't have a big following for most of the people to know because he's like a self-proclaimed guru. And same thing, I, he, he and I got into it. He wanted me to come on his podcast to debate hypertrophy. I'm like, okay, I'll come on. And we, we, we were debating it in my DMs about what we were going to talk about. And I said, so send me your data supporting what it is you're telling me. And then he began to insult me. And I run into that all the time. I tell yeah. people, if you're going to have a stance or believe something, just show me the data. Right. And if somebody starts attacking me personally at that point, I know they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Yep. Right. And I just walk away at that point. I'm like, if you have a stance on something, just show the data. And everybody I know that works in either academia or research or whatever, that's like normal like consideration. Like if I'm having a good discussion with you and you're like, well, show me the data. I'm like, okay, here's the data. This is what we're, this is what I'm talking about. And then they can do the same. They send me the data. If you can't do that, then your argument really has no merit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah I, I believe in the comments and you may be in something you've already mentioned already, but in the comments, somebody had tried to send you data 
and you basically just told them this research is dog shit. And I, I'm, I'm just curious, like, what is your, how do you feel when it comes to calling people out on social media? Is that something that you do on purpose? Like, will you physically look for things to call people out on? Or is it just, no, if it comes I, across I, you, I, I you will, you I legit don't. Like, I get drugged into some discussions. I have some things that I'm personally passionate about, um, like myself, especially like when it comes to biomechanics. But I don't go out looking for arguments to get into. Like, legit don't go out. Right. But some people will ask me about something and I'll read something. I do get kind of incensed about really bad information or misinformation. And so then I, so yeah, I, I like, I would go tell somebody, it's like, this is wrong. And you're actually, especially if it's something that I feel like is hurting people when they read it, like right. uh, that's really bad. And say the biomechanics stuff, when people are putting out videos, uh, that's, that's, it's absolutely atrocious. And then that's, it's literally going to get people hurt. That shit pisses me off. So, but there's so much bad information that doesn't get challenged. So and the internet's too big. Like you can't go to it all. Right. So the best you can do is put out good information. And then when people want to challenge you, when they show up want to challenge you, you just tell them, say, Hey, show me the data. Like if you got data, show me the data. And if the data is good, I'll change my mind. Yeah. Right. Well, that's the point of the debate, right? Is to, is to argue the actual data points and not to just insult each other. Cause you can do that in, you know, just, Social media is good for that. You don't have to have a debate well, for that. But. Most, the majority of people, <clears throat> something we talked about earlier is building your identity. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people, especially when it comes to lifting or fitness or whatever, they have such a strong identity about fitness being who they are. That that, that identity has to be made up of, you know, of little building blocks too. Like I believe all these things, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And these are all the things that I believe about fitness, about training, about whatever. And training and fitness, all that kind of stuff is me. I have this identification, this strong identification point that fitness is who I am. So that identification has to be made up of all of these other blocks as well. So all of those other things, when one of those things gets challenged, you're not really just challenging a, a knowledge set. You're challenging to them. You're challenging who they are as a person. Right. So there's an emotional response. Yeah. I don't do the emotional response thing. So not with that. So like, if you can show me data, like just show me data. Like, but if, if you're going to come like and attack me or whatever, I'm going to say the same thing. Show me the data. You're going to go. I'm not going to argue with the sake for the sake of arguing. If you can't show me the data, like that's really simple. Like, Hey Paul, look at these eight studies. This is why that I say this. Okay. Let me look at them. And if I look at those and it's like, those are good studies. And I'm like, okay, and they've all, they're all deciding the same outcomes, which is why we have a meta analysis. Then I'm going to be like, okay, dude, you're right, 100%. And I'll change my thought process on that. Mm-hmm. It's okay to say you're wrong. Like, that is like the biggest thing is like people's egos have got, are so good. Like, they, they're afraid to say they're wrong. Like, over the last probably year and a half, I've had to change so many things I thought about biomechanics. Like, I have, you know, go back all the years I was competing powerlifting. You know, you get told to hold your shoulders in retraction while you're pressing. That's really bad for your fucking shoulders and chest. Right. That will absolutely get you fucked up. Mm. But you go back and you start teaching. You're having to teach on get people to unlearn that shit. That's that's one of my favorite things about what you and John Meadows are doing with those videos that you put out is just even the the normal lifts that everybody always do. But you like while somebody's lifting, you will go up and show exactly where you need to be feeling this, where your shoulders need to be, all this, this, that and the other that makes the biomechanics look so much better and makes everything feel so much better in the long run is going to be able to make you lift a lot better um, just, you know, in general. Yeah. And it, dude, it's crazy. And it's like I said, I don't have all the answers. I know the things that, that I know. And I, I generally spend a lot of time making sure that I feel like I'm 
if I'm going to talk about something that I've spent a lot of time educating myself and working with people who are smarter than me on that topic so I can really understand it fully before I give it out to people. Um, otherwise, I'm not going to. Right. Uh, so when I come to that stuff and then when, more times than not, what I met head on with is an emotional argument. I just had this the other day with explaining that the deadlift is not a back exercise. Well, like that should make sense to anybody. Like uh, somebody else said something in one of those discussions that I wish I would have thought of myself. It's like if Romanian deadlifts built your – if they were a back building exercise, then bikini competitors would all look like Dorian Yates. <laughs> Right. Because they live on Romanian deadlifts. Right. Yeah. Like that's one of their staples. Right. For building their glutes and hamstrings. Right. But they all do them and they do them heavy. They don't have massive back development. Right. Mm -hmm. So people say, well, look, at this one guy or whatever. Uh, to me, the, the that's the best anecdotal evidence I've seen is like we have all these bikini competitors who all do glute thrust and Romanian deadlifts. That tends to be the staples. They don't have back like massive back development to speak of. Right. So like, and then when I broke that down, so that's the anecdotal part. When I broke that down from a mechanic standpoint to show you like why deadlifts are not a back building. It's not that your back does zero work. Clearly it does work, but it's, it's the, the, what's putting, doing the most major amount, what's the prime movers and doing the most amount of output in that movement. It's going to be your hamstrings. It's going to be your glutes. It's going to be your erectors, your lats and your upper back, I mean, existing of your rhomboids and your traps and your teres major and all that stuff. They are performing isometrically to hold the bar in a specific position. So when there's no stretch component and when you're not looking at the stretch and shortening component of a muscle in the exercise, it's not going to be as mechanically loaded. And we know that mechanically loading a muscle is how you get it to grow. Right. So when I break this down like that and give it to somebody and they show up and they want to argue, they're arguing from an emotional standpoint. Mm -hmm. and I literally get guys, they love to deadlift. And they want to they want to believe like think that that's Bill. I'm like, then how come you guys don't have back development worth of shit? Like you can you can. It's okay to say I just love the deadlift and just agree. You're okay. You're right. It's a it's a hamstring and glute erector exercise, and it's not really a back building exercise. So just keep doing deadlifts and feel fine about it. I don't care. But if I'm giving this information, it might help you with your programming because you say, okay, I can throw in deadlifts on leg day because it's a leg exercise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And it's not like you're there to hurt their ego on purpose. You're just I'm trying not. to get like, the I'm data. I'm giving this information, like, and you're like, okay, that's great, dude. So now I know if I'm going to deadlift, I should probably do them on when I'm doing my hamstrings and glute work. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's how to take that information do something smart with it. Yeah. Right. People become defensive when their information breaks down or, or what they thought was true breaks down. And so that's that's where it's kind right. of it's turning into an emotional. They don't feel like you're challenging, you know, a like just this you're not challenging like an idea, but you're challenging who they are. Right. Right. Yeah. They have such a strong identification, you know, to whatever it is. Like they create these strong identifications to the, the this, here's my belief system. It's who I am. And like, deadlifts have to be a factor. Like, well, they don't have, <laughs> they don't have to be at all. They're not. Right. So yeah. when you, when you put these things out there, they feel personally attacked. Like the guy that I, that, that said, I, I called out for saying artificial sweeteners are poisonous. He said I was personally attacking him. I didn't say anything about him as a man or his character or whatever. I said you can't use language that strong with no data. And he said I was personally attacking him. He was just kind of being a pussy about it. But, that, I mean, there's a lot of that online, right? Like he's like I'm not personally attacking you. I didn't say anything about your character. I said don't use language like that without data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like this conversation could go into a whole new conversation about <laughs> social media ethics and approach and, and dynamics but uh, we're going to be mindful of your time, Paul. And uh, 
maybe uh, hopefully have you back on sometime again, man. This conversation could keep going, but um, if you could, before we close things up, man, let's uh, let's give one more chance to promote you and what you do. Where can people find you? By the way, I highly recommend anyone with an earshot of this show follow you on social media because it is not just super informative. Because if you want someone who does the research, you're the guy to go to. It's what you do. But it's also, i got to be honest with you, it's entertaining as well. And I'm entertained <laughs> by your post. Uh, keep them coming. Uh, you know, whether it's sweetener or whether it's the uh, the cinnamon bun versus the cinnamon roll um, fiasco that, that people... Yeah, that's some bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's good stuff, though. So if... I, but That's another great point, right? Like, as soon as I say there's no such fucking thing as a cinnamon bun, you get people that have an emotional reaction to that. Yeah. A lot of what I do, I get taken, people's like, well, you're being a dick. A lot of what I do is, is I am so interested in the human psyche, right? So when you post that... And you can actually watch people have these emotional meltdowns because literally think about this. At the end of the day, I don't really care if somebody calls it a cinnamon bun, even if it's fucking wrong. Sure. Because I'm going to respect their autonomy to even be wrong. But the fact that you would see somebody have such a strong emotional reaction to something that's challenged in their life that literally doesn't change. Like they can go eat cinnamon rolls and call them buns all day and still enjoy it. But they have such a strong emotional reaction to be challenging that particular paradigm in their life. I'm like, wow, it's just a fucking cinnamon roll. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Or, or as you mistakenly call it a cinnamon bun. <laughs> you would but think I'll, that. I, I, I will admit, it's not like necessarily just like stirring the pot. Like, I do enjoy watching people have like these very strong emotional reactions to things that I think, why are you letting, why are you allowing that to happen? And the other thing that's happened lately, this is me on a minor rant that's happening on my social media lately is like if I don't post and I don't know if you guys have noticed but it's like, you may not like it's especially with the amount of visibility that I have if I don't post in a particular way people get upset um, I had, I actually literally had to remove a guy the other day like he told me what was it he said he's like you used to post really good stuff and lately you've just been posting about fucking it was like fucking dog psychology and cinnamon rolls I'm like, well, do get the fuck off my page then. <laughs> right. Like, in other words, he, I have to post a certain way or he's upset with me. Right. Think about the audacity of that. Yeah. And he feels like, like he I has. I have to post a certain way or he's upset with me. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> on oh, your page. Dude. Right. Yeah. That's what I told him. I was like, fuck you, dude. He's been on my face, social media for a long time. I, I sent him. Like, I just pack it. But that's what I was talking about with boundaries earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Like, such strong boundaries right there at that point. Like, he's coming. I was like, okay, well, you're gone. And people's like, well, you're like, yeah, I'm going to remove people who behave like that on my social media. It's my social media. Like, those are my boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. That's something we talk about a lot, especially when it comes to like people getting offended by random stuff and all that kind of thing. Instead of just scrolling on past it or unfollowing right? it, it's, I have to spend time on this right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You guys asked earlier, what do you got? I'm like, no, I see stuff all the time. Like as I scroll through social media mm -hmm. that I don't agree with, I don't say anything. I just go on about my day. Right. I don't understand how this is such a hard concept for people. Like I see stuff that's, that's is so inherently either morally wrong in my opinion, or whether it's physiologically wrong from a diet or training perspective all the time. And I would say, yeah, there are times when I'll go call somebody out, especially when it's training related or something like that. And I'll say, hey, this is wrong. And I actually show them the data. But there's so much stuff that I see every day that I don't agree with. I don't even I don't engage at all. There's no way I'm going to allow that to take up time in my day to be fighting with somebody on their social media 
about like something emotionally charged that I'm not going to change their mind on. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. So we liken it somewhat. We have in the past. We've talked to some comedians on the show. Uh, someone who comes to a comedy show, they come to see a comic because the, you know you usually go because you want to laugh, but yet they uh, they they basically troll. You know, right. they they shout insults. You're not funny. Well, what are you doing here? We're supposed to be here to laugh. If you don't Dude, like I, something, I, move on I, about your life and and leave I, the guy I, alone. I guy, I remember a guy from my social media last night that I actually like. I've been friends with for like 20 years, like legit friends, no in person. And all I posted was, I was like, okay, who all's doing No Shave November? And he yeah. wrote on my social media, who cares? I was like, what's your, I was like, okay, I was like, well, like, what's this, what's your fucking problem? And then he attacked me, and then, and then he insulted me, and then, and then blocked me. <laughs> I'm like, that's what I mean. Like, this is a person I actually literally at one point got a, a plane ticket for. Like flew to one of his shows to support him. Like this is like real. Like, hey, I'm gonna come support you mm-hmm. in your own endeavors. And then, like, wants to be an asshole on my social media. Yeah, beards are like, a trigger for him. Like, I don't know how somebody's working with that amount of internal dysfunction. Yeah, it's for no apparent reason. Maybe he just had a bad day. I don't know, but <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a before before we close out. I got one more thing. There was a there's a Facebook page. It's a closed group actually, and it's called "This is a, a weird hill to die on." And people posit a, a a stance on something. They posit a point that they that they believe in, and then everybody in that group comes and tries to dismantle that point. And so it's kind of like kind of like the same logic that you're talking about. It, it's you know it, it's how well can you tear down my argument. Um, and sometimes they bring data, sometimes they bring insults, but they, they, they try to moderate it pretty well to where it's actually a pretty good exercise in, in trying to, uh, you know, establish a good debate based on whatever random point that you want to be your hill to defend. And, uh, just a good exercise. I, I joined it. I, I mostly just watch. I haven't actually defended the hill yet, but it, it's interesting to see people try and tear those things down, uh, because they bring creativity and most of the time they bring, you know, courtesy, they don't. They don't just come and say, "Well, you're just a jackass, so you know your hill sucks." It, it's it's usually something pretty so it's intelligent. Like an, it's like informative debate. Basically, yeah, yeah, and we need more of that on social media because there's too much trolling. You know, trolling. I get it. It it, it can be fun. It can be funny. Um, but it it, it, it serves no usually usually One of it serves no purpose. I think about pretty staunchly before I post something if it's going to be something like the artificial things. It's like I make sure that I've already collected my data and information and I post all that out there. It's like, for example, when I was telling people, okay, I'm going to make a post, letting you guys know deadlift is not for building your back. I'm going to break that down mechanically to show you why it's not a back building exercise. So when people come to debate it, there's really nowhere for it to go. There's nowhere for that particular. So I'm not spending all day trying to do that. So, sure. I mean, I still get into it with some people. Once I get into it, it's like helping them further understand. But what's funny is when you actually present a really well thought out point like that, like I did with, I watch people ride around trying to figure out how to, to uh, massage their word salad so that they, they feel like they're making a point that defends their emotional stance, but they, they just continue to fall file in their face. It's a pretty, it's a pretty fun thing to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like years ago. It's like when I, I remember there were people that were saying that you could bench press with your lats. And I don't know if you guys have either heard or it's literally the powerlifters were saying that you could bench press with your lats. Literally, it's physically impossible. Hmm. Uh, and I saw all sorts of people try to try to justify that um, that particular like, physiologically you can't even explain. But I saw lots of weird shit people trying to explain that case. But 
the same thing was talking about deadlifts or the same thing we're talking about like yesterday with like artificial sweeteners or things like that. It's like when you have data and you actually put that stuff out there, you just get to watch people rather around and make emotional arguments. I don't, I just don't really do that anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I take it as an educational point because I, I'm sure I used to, I'm sure I have, I've caught myself as a matter of fact, providing a stance or arguing for something that I really had no business being there because I couldn't back it up. And, and even, right. even things that are somewhat subjective, if I don't have enough experience in that, if I don't have, something to drive that argument. I need to shut up. You know? And that, that's me personally. Some people like that emotional argument stuff, I guess. I, I don't. I, I like to know what I'm talking about or, or learn. And most of the time, I just learn, right? Because there's a lot of smart people out there that have a lot of smart things to say, and I want to soak it in and be able to utilize it. I don't, I don't want to open my mouth and make myself look, you know, like a jackass. So, um, but yeah, it, it just, you know, even if you have a subjective argument, a weird hill to die on, then you want to make sure that you've got something to go with. And so I, I take what you say there, Paul, as a, as education, don't get into things if you don't have your data already stacked up and in line and ready to go, because otherwise you're just setting yourself up to, you know, be, be wrong. Jackass. Right. Maybe. <laughs> so Paul, once again, if you could give us all of the places where people can find you, if you have anything that, um, whatever you have to promote, let us have it. Yeah, generally, if, if you just Google my name, you're going to find me. Um, if you Google Paul Carter, I think I come up, I can try it right now. Um, I think I come up pretty um, pretty fast. But that may be because it's my Google account, yeah. But if you, yeah, if you actually, if you Google my name, um, one of the first things that my Instagram my articles at T Nation and then Lift Run Bang will be like the first three to come up. And then my Twitter account's actually um, is actually trending now too. So if you actually just Google my name, those will come up. I plan on uh, probably um, launching a real, an actual real website after the first of the year. You would think somebody with roughly 50,000 followers on Instagram alone would have a real website, but I don't. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm going to launch a, an actual website probably after the first of the year. Um, which, like I said, I've gone this many years now where I just literally had a blog off of Google. If anybody, I think they should give somebody hope that they don't have to go out and, you know, do all this crazy shit all over, you know, spend all this money to put themselves out there digitally, uh, to grow their business or whatever. Um, I've, I've just got the blog, which I don't even write on anymore. Um, so, I mean, Instagram has kind of become my whole, uh, my website, so, but I'm actually going to launch a, a website uh, after the first of the year. A lot of that for, because I'm going to streamline, consolidate a lot of stuff that I do with my clients out of it. Uh, that's been a big, a big thing that I've been trying to, to, uh, to focus on. So, uh, yeah, I'll have an actual website after the first of the year. Uh, and I'll start, probably start writing again, mainly just for, for that website about all things like life, relationship, training, nutrition, all that kind of stuff related. So it'll be kind of, I try to do a little bit, I try to be a little bit of a renaissance man where it's like most guys can only just talk about training and nutrition. And I've spent a lot of time um, educating myself on other topics related stuff as well, because there's, I feel like there's, you, yeah, you can talk about training and nutrition forever, but I get bored of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like, I like that you have that approach though, because there's so much more than just training and nutrition. Uh, you know, you've got mental health, you've got relationships, you've got even social media. That, I mean, all everything. That stuff, yeah. All that stuff matters. Yeah, absolutely. It all, it all interweaves into the fabric of your life. So Paul, we really appreciate you being on, man. This has been a great time. And uh, thanks for once again, taking out the time to, to speak with us. And we appreciate it. I know our listeners will as well. And absolutely. yeah, man, keep up the great work. We'll be, we'll be following. Thanks for having me on, guys. I had a good time. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks, bud. 
Thanks again to Paul Carter, and thank you, CEP listener. You know we wouldn't be doing this thing without all of you all out there, so please keep coming back. And remember that word of mouth is like gold to us, so be sure to tell your friends and fam about the awesomeness that you hear right here on the Cerebral Entertainment Podcast. Also, be sure to visit the launching pad for all things Cerebral at thecepodcast.com. Check us out. Go see us on the socials. Give us all of your love and your follows and your likes and your sweetness on Facebook, Instagram, all of those. You know the routine. And also, if you need to contact us, you can do that at Cerebral at thecepodcast.com. And so without uh, any more ranting by me, that's going to do it for us. So uh, as always, be sure to keep your brains warm out there. We'll see you.